Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business, and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, building experiences that connect, remove friction, and deliver insights. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend and Veris Sage Institute colleague, Ed Kless. On today's show, folks, we're honored we have the economist Brian Kaplan. Hey, Ed, how's it going? Going great, Ron. I can't t- wait to talk to Brian, so let's jump right in. I agree. Brian Kaplan is a professor of economics at George Mason University, and he's a New York Times bestselling author. He's written The Myth of the Rational Voter. Uh, which was named the best political book of the year. It's a fantastic book. Selfish Reasons to Have More Kids, The Case Against Education, Open Borders, and How Evil Are Politicians. He claims he's an openly nerdy man who loves role-playing games and graphic novels. He lives in Oakton, Virginia, or uh, Oakton, uh, Virginia with his wife and four kids. I wouldn't say nerdy, Brian. I would say really thought-provoking, but welcome to the soul of enterprise. Fantastic to be here. What's up? Oh, I, I got so much I want to talk to you about. Um, Let's do it. Excellent. I, I kind of, I'm going to focus on your books and I think Ed's going to focus more on your articles. So let's talk about the case against education. You wrote this and uh, came out in 2018, which is when I read it. I love this book, Brian. This was so thought provoking. I mean, you come right out and say that our education system is a big waste of time and money. And, and you've been in school for 45 years. <laughs> More now. <laughs> Just keeps going up. <laughs> oh, expl- explain that. It's a, such a provocative comment. Most people misinterpret the book as saying that education is a bad idea for you personally. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that it is a bad idea to subsidize it, to be pushing it, because the main reason why education pays in the real world and it does, is not that you're learning useful skills, but rather that you're getting a stamp on your forehead, grade A worker. Uh, What's the difference? The difference is, look, if we all go to school and getting useful skills, our whole society can get richer. But if what the main thing we're doing in school is all going there and getting stamps on our forehead, you cannot have a stamp-based economy. You can't have a stamp-based society. What happens when you get a lot of stamps getting passed out is that you get credential inflation, just means that you need more degrees, more time in school in order to get the same job that your parents or grandparents were able to get with less. And I say, this is why our education system is a waste of time and money. It's not that it's bad for the individual who succeeds. Rather, it is basically a rat race. It's one where we've created a system where people feel like I've got to really get a lot of education in order to have a chance to go and get a a decent job. Even though when you finally show up for that job, you don't use what you learned in school very much. The simplest slogan is this. We think about education as job training when it is really much more of a passport to the real training, which happens on the job. Right, now that's a great point. So I know the debate in this centers around the concept of signaling versus human capital development. Mm -hmm. Can you kind of explain that? Because I was surprised when you said you think it's more like 80% signaling. Right. These are basically the, the, it's the jargon that you can attach to what I just said before in the first question. Human capital is the idea that the, what you're getting in school is useful job skills. Right. Signaling is the idea that you're getting stamps in your forehead. Of course, the truth is both happen. I don't deny that. I'm very clear on that, actually. There's about 100 times in the book where I say it's not 100% signaling. This has not stopped critics from saying, Brian says it's all signaling. I totally said the opposite. But yeah, you're right. I do think that a breakdown of about 20% human capital, 80% uh, signaling is correct. 
I have a bunch of different reasons why these numbers make sense to me. I'm not married to them, but I do think they are the most reasonable. One is I just go, th just go through a list of how people actually spend their time in school. We do have data on what people are doing all day. And I'd say that about 80% of the time you're in school is just stuff where it's highly implausible that you'll ever use it outside of school. I look at this literature on credential inflation. And I say there, um, when we just go and compare numbers on the amount of education that people need to get a job to the amount of education they need to do the job, I will say that while both have gone up, but still the rise in education needed to get a job, that's, uh, that explains for about, explains about 80% of the rise in total education. So that is another way of doing it. In the book, I go over some other metrics. So yeah, another one is if you just look at the effect of education on individual income versus national income. Again, this 2080 breakdown seems about right. Basically, when countries invest in education and get their educational attainment up, they seem to get only about one-fifth as much as you expect that they would get from getting an individual to get that education up so much. So again, I say all these pieces fall into place, although obviously there is room for disagreement here. If someone says it's 75, not 80, I'm not going to go and say, heretic, get thee gone. <laughs> I'm just trying to get the most reasonable <laughs> number to put on it. But I think it's got to be something really high. When people say it's under half, that's why I'm saying, no, there's just no way it's under half. It's crazy. It's got to be more than half, for God's sake. Well, you have that great thought experiment that you point out about, would you rather just go to Princeton and, and take the classes and get the degree or actually pay for it and do all the work? And yeah, I'd rather just have the yeah. piece of paper. Yeah, so actually the thought, what the thought experiment says is you'd rather have the Princeton education without the proof that you ever went there, or would you rather have a fake diploma and not have the education? Now, right. people sometimes say, hmm, and as soon as they say, hmm, I say, hmm. I win, because the point of the thought experiment is not that there's definitely a right answer. The point of the thought experiment is that it's a good question, and you, and at least you have to think about it a bit to decide. Uh, so, like, anytime anyone just says, oh, well, obviously you want the education, like, pretty much nobody says that unless they are dogmatically committed to disagreeing with me. But as long as they just focus on what they have seen with their own eyes in real life, then pretty much everybody agrees with me. And how do you counter the argument, Brian, that, oh, but it exposes kids to a broad array and then they can find themselves and it's inspiring and all of that? What I say is it would be wonderful if schools would expose kids to a broad array of possibilities, but they totally don't. Instead, they have the same ossified list of about eight subjects where there are almost no jobs. I say, look, oh, you could be a poet or a scientist or an historian or a professional athlete. Like these are all pipe dreams. There's almost no jobs there. You're exposing people to a quite short list of things over and over, year after year. And then at the end, guess what? There are almost no positions in these occupations anyway. Uh, so I think it would be fantastic if starting when you're 12 years old, schools would say, hey, guess what? We're going to give you two weeks each on 20 different realistic occupations. So elder care. Let's do two weeks of elder care. Find out whether that appeals to any of you. All right, fine. Let's go and do two weeks of web page design. You know, just go on and on. Just give people a long list of possibilities. Just make sure that what you're exposing them to is something where there's a noticeable number of jobs because otherwise you are basically just giving kids pipe dreams. Um, 
you know, I think almost everybody has some idea that you really don't want to overly encourage a mediocre basketball player with the dream of becoming a professional basketball player. When he's five, fine, you can pretend and humor him. But if he's 15 and he's like benched on his own high school team to keep saying, oh, maybe it's like, no, no, maybe <laughs> you will never be a professional basketball player. You're five foot eight. It's, you aren't even good by the standards of your high school. This is not kind. It is not kind to keep encouraging someone in these absurd fantasies. So true. Um, you know, with all the states now allowing educational savings accounts, I just, what's your take on this movement hmm. where, you, where the funding goes to the kid and the parents and then go wherever they want? You think oh, so you mean vouchers, not so much savings accounts, right? Well, like, like I'm thinking Arizona's safe universal, you know, saving account in Florida just passed something. Okay, and so so I guess mostly what I know about these is the voucher part. So I'm, I'm probably out to lunch, actually, on the savings part where I got a missed summary of what the programs are doing. Um, so I actually have changed my mind about this a fair amount since writing mm -hmm. this education. This is one of my biggest rethinkings. When I wrote it, my main position was Ideologically, I like private school better than public school, but I just don't see that it's very different in practice. The main reason why I favor private stuff is just to get the funding out. But if your government is going to be funding your private education, then I say, well, it's not that different. Uh, what I learned during COVID is there is one massive, super important difference between public and private education that I was totally forgetting, which is that private education stays open in person, thereby providing the vital service of daycare, and public school generally didn't. So right. that's my big rethinking. It never really occurred to me before COVID that the public schools would have the chutzpah to take all your tax money and then stop giving daycare. <laughs> Like, like I, like I thought I had gotten my expectations down rock bottom, but the idea, no, no, no we're going to take $20,000 for a kid and then not give you daycare. Uh, suck it up. I'm like very striking. You know, private schools almost always reopened as soon as they could in person because they knew they were only getting the money if people wanted to send their kids there and people did not want to spend 40 or 50,000 bucks a year for Zoom school. Right. What do you think about the argument that this will shift the, the power between the parents, you know, from the unions to the parents, and just that threat alone and the competition will improve schools for everybody? Do you buy it that? A lot, it makes a lot of sense, but I, I will say that looking at the facts, I am saying, huh, I think the truth is, look, you're, it's absolutely true. The problem is that most parents don't want something that different from what exists. They, most parents are at least content with the status quo. I mean, I know this so like, like whenever my kids are in school, I go to parent-teacher night and I listen to what the teachers have to say. And normally I'm like, this is stupid, this is terrible. I can't believe you'd say such ridiculous things. And I look around the room like, oh, I'm the only person with this reaction. Everyone else, almost always moms, are smiling and nodding in approval. Wow. That's, you know, so it's like, okay, if you put the money in their hands, if you don't want something very different, then you're not going to get something very different. In the case of COVID reopening, that was a case where parents definitely wanted something different from what unions wanted, and then private schools delivered. But right. for things like what will be the political slant of history education, I just don't see that there's actually that much pressure among parents for something different. I do think that maybe, say, 5 to 10% of parents have a, have a strongly different opinion. And what's nice about vouchers is they'll be able to get that. Right. 
Right. It won't lead to a dramatic change in the average, but it will allow people who are there saying this is ridiculous to at least opt out and get something that they consider less ridiculous. I just find it amazing that we assign schools based on your zip code. It'd be <laughs> like assigning grocery stores based on, I mean. Yeah. <laughs> well, but like, it's not so amazing. It's the mentality of a central planner where everyone gets allocated to a certain location and we don't have time to be worrying about all of these other complaints or issues. It's not like we're trying to keep the customer happy. It's like we're just trying to go and make it fair for everybody. Like as long as everyone's been treated the same, then you've got no valid complaint. Um, it's not, you know, whereas when you're running a business, it's like, is there anything else we could do for you, sir? Right. All right well, uh, well, as a matter of fact, yeah. I'd like another pillow mint. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Brian, this is great. It's flying by. And folks, we'd like to remind you, if you want to contact Ed or me, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Do check out our Patreon channel where you can subscribe, become a member, and get access to our bonus programs. That's at patreon.com slash tsoe. That channel is sponsored by 90 Minds. It's a matter of mind. Check out their work at 90minds.com. And now a word from our sponsors. All clear. Great segment. Back into. Excellent. Great stuff, Brian. Thank you. So, Brian, I'm going to pick up sort of on the education, but from the cost side, from your article from May 8th, which is the cost is either zero or astronomical. Uh Okay, sure. Um, And and I want to tell you why this is important is because we we service a lot of professional organizations. So Mm. accountants, lawyers, they fall into this trap all the time. <laughs> just one. We can just. I mean, it, we'll add just another customer. That's fine. Let's just. You know, yeah. we can. We can always add one more customer. It's not a big deal. <laughs> so, um, and then I also have something that's a follow-on to, to Ron's that I think is going to be uh, fun for you about um, the signaling effect. So I just came across an article the other day. Cool, cool. So, so where are you guys physically located? Ed's well, in. Well, <laughs> well, right, right now I, I, I am in Surprise, Arizona, at a baseball tournament for my son, who oh, wow. is wants to play in college, but is not going to be a major league baseball player. I know that's <laughs> to be the case, <laughs> but he is good. He's probably good enough to play in college. <laughs> but uh, um, you know, anyway. like if it's fun, great. But yeah, like, yeah, exactly. You know, like it's not you know, a job. <laughs> it's, it's not you know, it's not a job, and he knows that, and you know, but he's also a pretty good student. So we're trying to find you know the right spot for him yeah, there. Uh, but usually, I am uh, twenty five miles north of Dallas. That's where we live. Ah. And Ron is in California. I'm in Northern California in the wine country. Yep. Yeah, I've been going to a few Vanderbilt University baseball games with my sons. We sort Mm. of got into it uh, this year. 10 seconds. It started off with doing a baseball-themed role-playing game. And I said, well, we should go and watch a few games to get into the the character of the... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit us on the web at the soul of you can also chat with us on twitter using hashtag ask tsoe now back to the soul of enterprise and today on the soul of enterprise we are talking to economist brian kaplan and in addition to his books that ron mentioned in the first segment Please check out Brian's blog, which you can find at betonit.substack.com. Just look up Brian Kaplan too, but that's Brian with a Y and Kaplan with a C. So just to make sure that everybody can find his great stuff. And Brian, uh, picking up on a theme of Ron, I want to run this by you. I uh, came across a story from The Insider this week that was talking about the consultants that are being paid now. Some parents are willing to pay up to $4,000 to get their daughters into sororities. 
<laughs> if that's not a great example of this whole signaling thing, I don't know what is. Yeah, I mean, that's one where actually it might be a great example. I mean, I'd be more inclined to say that's actually some of the better money spent because your daughter gets to make a bunch of good friends and be part of a fun group. You might say, well, that's not the point of sending her to college. It's like, well, it's a point of sending her to college. You know, <laughs> if it's actually important to you to get into a sorority, then maybe this is a good idea. I mean, even $4,000 compared to what you're paying for the full academic experience, you could be paying several hundred thousand for the actual tuition and room and board. So 4,000 more bucks goes and gives you a much better social experience. Maybe that actually is money well spent by comparison anyway. Yep. And here's, and, and, yeah. So and, like, I, like I'm, 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 I'll say I'm uh, for a nerd anyway, I'm very pro Greek. My wife is actually the president of her sorority. <laughs> so, so here's, here's the final paragraph of this, which, which led me to believe that we are all in the wrong business. Okay. And this is the quote, but $4,000 is far cheaper than the sums that some people are forking over to get their kids admitted to top universities. Mm -hmm. Alan Coe, who runs the educational consulting firm Cardinal Education told Insider in 2020 that he charged up to $350,000 for his most intensive consulting package. What? <laughs> now that doesn't seem like money well spent to me, but maybe. <laughs> so yeah, but uh, I want to turn your attention to an article that you posted on your blog back in May, which is the other side of this, and that is the cost side. The title mm -hmm. of it is The Cost is Zero or Astronomical. And this is where you're talking about, everybody talks about education as being ex expensive, $13,494 per student, but the marginal cost is zero. So where is it, Brian? Is, is the cost of a new student zero or is it another, another $13,494? Uh, the answer is, it depends. What I explain in the article, though, is I don't just do the cop-out answer. I, I go into the weeds. So you say, look, if you've got a classroom and there's an empty seat, then, yeah, like you can add one more student with at least very little additional cost. Uh, however, if you apply this logic sequentially, you'll say, okay, well, then let's add another student. Let's add another student, another student. Eventually, you do go and hit the wall where you have to say, well, to add one more student, we're going to have to go and create a whole additional classroom, which means additional space and additional teacher, everything else. And at that point, the extra cost of that one student isn't just the cost of one more student. It actually is many times that. Uh, so yeah, if it was costing you $13,000 a year on average to have students in a classroom, then as long as you have got spare seats, you might say, well, it's roughly zero. But once you add on that, the, the one more student, it's like, well, now we're going to have a class with one student. That's going to go and cost us, say, 30 times $13,000. So it'll be $390,000. Um, and then the punchline there is that the average cost per student is still probably the best measure we have of the likely marginal cost. Most of the time you get lucky and then, yeah, there's not much. But every now and then you hit the wall and then it's astronomical. And when you average those two things together, then just looking at the overall average is actually a pretty good approach. And I ask you about this because as I mentioned during our break, we, we serve a lot of professional organizations that, that fall victim to this same mentality mm -hmm. with bringing on one more additional customer, one more additional customer. Mm -hmm. So it's such a, it's a, it's a big problem. Yeah. I mean, like, so like as a professor, it's very normal for me just to say, hey, come on, come all barely any extra cost. Uh, that's just because I'm not as popular as I would like to be. If I were really popular, then yeah, of course, the visitors would soon be completely crowding out the paying students and there'd be an issue. So I think I, there would be complaints eventually, but 
I've never gotten to that point because the number of people that want to get some free education from me who are willing to schlep out to get it is quite small, but, but yeah. So, so you allow anyone to audit your classes? Is that correct? I do actually. Yes. So standing offer to anyone on earth, you are totally free to audit any of my classes. I'll even grade your exams. Uh, don't mind at all. Uh, the number of people taking me up on this. Uh, well, let's see. There's probably been hundreds that have shown up for one class. The number that have actually gotten a whole semester's worth of free education, I think I can count on two hands anyway. Okay, that's non-zero. It's a non-zero number. Non -zero. That's pretty good. <laughs> non-zero number. It's, yeah. it's, it's a trivial <laughs> amount of extra work for me, averaging over all the years in classes. Uh, another article that you posted also in May, and I, I really just love this one, is it, because it made me think I hadn't realized this at all, but NIMBY is economic illiteracy. Why is not in my backyard economic illiteracy? Yeah, great question. Uh, this is central to the book that I'm wrapping up, uh, Build Baby Build, the Science and Ethics of Housing Regulation. But here's the idea. Most people, and but especially most economists, when they hear about how hard it is to get building permits, just say, ah, oh, what's the fault of those terrible NIMBYs, not in my backyard. And the story is, look, they've got expensive houses already. They don't want anyone else to build because they know that if more houses get built, that will increase supply, increase supply reduces prices. It can all be explained very elegantly by simple self-interest and the fact that basically people who, the, you know, the most the median voter, the typical voter is someone who owns a home and wants the price of homes to stay high. All right, so standard story. Uh, and it sounds really good. People say, yes, of course, of course, if you own a home, you don't, you, know, you want to keep property values high, which means to keep construction low. Uh, what's wrong with this is just a bunch of facts. Uh, so uh, fact number one, when you go and survey renters, renters are NIMBYs too that we did not have a big class conflict between renters who say build skyscrapers i don't care i don't care just let people build stuff and homeowners saying no stop it's bad for our property values instead what you see is a general consensus among both owners and renters that we don't want to let a bunch of greedy fat cats to go while building whatever they want because that's just bad for society so that's one big fact uh, another one is if you just start thinking about, well, what really is in the interest of existing homeowners? Well, let's see. Uh, one thing is you might think that existing homeowners might want to go and move to a better house. And if that is your goal, if you're currently in your starter house, then you've got to say, well, on the one hand, when we build fewer houses, this raises the value of my current home. But on the other hand, when we restrict it, it raises the value of my current home but it also raised the value of the, the cost of the home I would like to buy. So it's kind of complicated as to what the actual net effect is, even for a homeowner. Or what if you're a homeowner that wants your kids to go and live near you once they are grown? In that case, again, it's like, well, yeah, I mean, I like having my home be expensive, but I want my kids to be able to afford to live within hundred miles of me. So I've got to weigh those two things. Uh, but probably the, the very strongest piece of evidence against this idea that it's all based upon objective self-interest. Uh, just comes down to how averse most people are to a deal. If it's a matter of like, I, well, I'm in this for me, tough luck if it's, this is bad for you. Well, then you'd think that say owner of a skyscraper or whether the would-be builder of a skyscraper come and say, well, how much money is it gonna take to make this problem go away? 
And you go, um, like 3 million. Okay, done. Here's 3 million. Oh, should have asked for more. But that's the way that you think it would work is that people would be very open to negotiation. Uh, instead, when you go and actually read about the typical meeting of, of a zoning board, uh, there's this great book, uh, you know, Neighborhood Defenders, that actually has the transcripts of like, uh, and like ton of meetings in Massachusetts. It's not like, like a, a horse trading <laughs> or like a horse market or something where everyone, people say, ah, I want this. Well, here's what you're going to have to do. Instead, it's more of this could hurt birds. No. And then the, 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 the widow were like, okay, well, I'll make like a giant bird sanctuary and I'll like pay money to go and do genetic engineering to go and help the birds. Like, no, that wouldn't be good enough because there wouldn't be natural birds then. And it's like, okay, well, how about, and I, like, it's like, it's like that. It's just like pulling teeth with the most stubborn, difficult people in the world. And, and so it's like, it's not self-interest. It's more of, of someone who imagines that they are, in the words of the title of the book, I'm a neighborhood defender. I'm keeping my neighborhood wonderful by stopping these horrible rich jerks who want to build things. That's how we got to the position where we demonize the suppliers of the second most vital service on earth. Like first is food. As far as I know, we have not yet gotten to the point where we act like anyone wants to grow food is evil. It's like, you want to grow food? You monster. I know what's your real plan. But we are at that level for the second most vital product, which is housing. Like, you're going to build houses. Oh, yeah. And what's your real goal? Just to make money. Like, okay, well, yeah, that, that had crossed my mind. Uh, just like anyone else who runs a business doesn't mean that you should think of me as a bad person. Like, I want to go and build a lot of stuff. What's so bad about that? Well, you're right in my wheelhouse. I happen to have moved into a neighborhood but 20 years ago, which I had, if I had known about it, I wouldn't have because of the, the homeowners association, which I think is the closest thing to fascism we have in the United States. <laughs> um, but it, but it, it's, a, it's a whole series of, I, I think we should have a park here. Well, why don't you go buy it? And like, if you, you no, know, I, I think other people should pay for this. Yes. Do you think now, that- now, uh, By the way, in terms of the economic illiteracy connection, well, yeah, also, yeah. if it's not self-interest, then what is it? And this is where I say we've got a couple of very good studies showing that there's just widespread denial of the obvious fact that when the supply of housing goes up, prices go down. It's just widely denied. There's just a lot of people with a Robert Kennedy Jr. level conspiracy theory of, oh, sure, right. Building lots of houses will make them cheaper. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like I'm going to believe that. How stupid do you think I am? Was I born yesterday? It's like, it's not a conspiracy theory. It's common sense. Well, like, what do you think would happen if we knocked over half the houses? You know, you don't think prices would rise if we knocked over half the houses? Well, what do you think is going to happen if we double the number of houses? The prices are going to go down, of course. So yes, just a lot of economic illiteracy, and you know, especially combined with just refusal to put a price tag on things, saying, "Well, you say you that'll be you'll get a billion dollars from building this new skyscraper, but what about this nest of birds? What about it's like the nest of birds? Like what is that? It's like a two hundred dollar problem. Here you go, here's two hundred one bucks. Now shut up." <laughs> but of course, that's not how it works because in political debate, it matters really often more to have just a long list of objections than to have one giant argument of this will create a billion dollars of value let me do it for the love of god like no i've got a hundred petty reasons not to and i'm just going to go on and on and on until you stop asking yeah and then unfortunately some some states and localities cater to that 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 yeah. thinking some and i mean almost all really almost all you know, say like what's the only places where it's easy to build stuff are the places where there's hardly any people in the first place 
So Fair basically enough. the places that are easy to build are the places where you don't want to build because the people aren't there. Sort of what you really want to do as a developer is to say, hey, there's going to be a ton of people here real soon. Let's build like crazy before there's anyone who lives here to complain. And then one, and then that's where you go and make your mint. And then people show up and it's like, yeah, well, now the people are here. They're not going to let us keep doing this anymore because we built them places to live and now they live here and now they're going to complain about us. Well, great stuff, Brian. We're up against our second break. want to remind our listeners that they can contact me or Ron by sending one email to asktsoe at verisage.com. The website is The Soul of Enterprise, where you can see show notes as well as previews to upcoming shows. Our second break is sponsored by 90 Minds. Find and mind at 90minds.com. At a certain level, there, our Patreon channel is sponsored by people, including our Blake Oliver at Earmark CPE. Check him out at EarmarkCPE.com. But right now, a word from our sponsors. All clear. Great segment. Back in two. Great stuff, Brian. Yeah, that's uh, that hits home, Brian. I, I also live in an HOA, and we have a golf course here that went bankrupt and the developer wants to build more homes. <laughs> oh, geez, all hell broke loose. And yeah. I, I've got a real simple take on this. I, I want to live in a community that other people want to move to. <laughs> I don't want to live in Detroit where people are, I mean, yeah. The, the, oh, yeah, just, yeah. And I actually forgot like another big point, which is when more people move into your community, there are some bad things like, you know, maybe there's more traffic and more parking problems. There's sure. also a bunch of good things like more restaurants are now sustainable. Yes. Like nobody wants to live in the middle of nowhere, which yeah. shows, look, the, the bad stuff that people do you know, like is less than the good stuff that people do in the eyes of almost everyone. And, and that's a really good point about moving up and trading up to your house from your starter house. I mean, where do you think this inventory comes from? <laughs> comes from, duh, it's so frustrating. <clears throat> I mean, so that's like another ridiculous conspiracy theory is when they say well like well they're going to build new housing but it only be for the rich it's like well where do you think the poor live they live in the housing the rich lived in 50 years ago <laughs> and then again there's like, like, like there's like oh sure it all works out very nicely and it's like yeah well like it's easy to show this like, where do poor people live they live in the old housing it's like the used and, car and market it and it wasn't the housing for poor people the day they built it Right. There is a, a descending chain of being and that's the world. And like, it's way better than you know, anyone else's plan. Coming back in a couple seconds. Awesome. So I'm going to try and hit three books in this, in this segment. Hope, <laughs> hope, luck, hope we get to them all. Tuned into the soul of enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed class to find out more about our show, visit us on the web at the soul of You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag ask TSOE. Now back to the soul of enterprise. Well, welcome back everybody here. We're here with uh, Brian Kaplan, the economist from George Mason and Brian, you wrote a book, selfish reasons to have more kids and I'm just curious your take on the declining fertility rates around the world. I mean, some countries as low as 0.6 uh, kids per, you know, per person. Um, no, and 0. also 0.78 for South Korea. I've never heard 0. 0.6. Oh, is it 0. 0.78 for South yeah. Korea? Okay. I, I knew it was in there somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Low. Um, yeah, real low. I mean, it's low. Yeah. Um, and, and a bunch of other countries as well. Uh, and then the projected decline in population. I mean, how do you think about this as an economist? There's really no model for this. Is there to predict the, we've never lived through a declining population. Hmm. I'd say we've definitely got the models. 
we don't have much experience. That's different. <laughs> and the models basically are models with population growth. And then you just put to make it a negative sign and same basic idea. Uh, in terms of what's going on. Um, so when I wrote the book, I said, look, the main thing that I, th that, uh, I can actually affect anyway is the self-imposed ideology of helicopter parenting, the feeling that you are a terrible parent unless you go and ruin your whole life for the sake of your kid's future well-being. Uh, this is what I primarily am talking about in the book. I say, look, we've actually have a pile of evidence from twin adoption studies showing that your kids' adult prospects have very little to do with how you raise them, which means you can give yourself a guilt-free break. Now, in terms of what's happening is I think people have just generally not listened to me. And this ideology of helicopter parenting is stronger than ever. I think it's especially highest in these very lowest fertility countries. So in country, so South Korea, this is one where parents just feel like they've got to go and do everything for their kids and put their kids in cram school. Moms have to give up their careers for their kids. Everything de dedicated to giving this one kid a halfway decent future in this horrible rat race where everybody else is doing the same thing. Uh, but like I said, it turns out that actually the evidence is that the stuff doesn't work very much. The main reason why kids resemble their parents in their outcomes is genetics. There's very little to do with upbringing. So there's basically just like a pile of waste. Now, in terms of why it's so hard to change people's minds about this stuff, you know, a lot of it I would just say is that this is one of the hardest intellectual questions in the world because nature and nurture are so intertwined in almost all families. It's so easy to go and mistake genetic effects for upbringing effects. Uh, furthermore, we also have a lot of evidence that in the short run, parenting effects actually are substantial. It's just they aren't very long, big and important in the long run. Uh, there is what we call fade out where parents have a substantial effect in the short run, but then you eventually go back to the way that you would have been. The analogy that I like is that we think about kids as being like clay where you shape them once and they stay that way. But a much better analogy is they're more like a flexible plastic bottle where you crush it and it moves and you release it and it pops back out. Uh, so it's just very hard to persuade people on this point. So I think that is at least the most important factor that is changeable, right? Because if people would just realize, oh, I don't have to actually suffer nearly as much as I think, then the idea of having kids becomes a lot less daunting. The idea of having more kids becomes a lot less daunting. I think there actually are a bunch of other factors. So I mean, one just is that uh, when people are richer, there's just a lot more fun stuff you could be doing. Right. So like, I'm just don't want, I don't want to deny that. I think there is a reason why people in your Disneyland for adult locations, uh, like you know, New York or San Francisco or Tokyo or Seoul, there is a reason why they're, they're not feeling like I've really got to have kids, which is they've got all this, these incredible consumer opportunities. So that's happening too. I mean, I'm always urging people to say yes, but if you are interested in kids at all, you could take a lot of that money and spend it to go and just solve a lot of the things you don't like about being a parent. So, you know, like, you know people often get angry and they say, well, that's no good for people without money. So yeah, well, I'm happy to help some people even when I can't help all people. So if there's someone who has got a lot of money and like, I'm so tired, I'm so miserable, I don't have any fun. It's like, take the money and use it to hire someone to help you take care of your kids so you can sleep and have fun. Okay, is, it, is this really so hard? And then it's like, well, I couldn't pause. Yes, you can. It's no, don't blame. It's like, but as a parent, don't blame the child. Don't blame the parent role. It is you. You are making choices while trying to pretend that they are that you don't have choices. 
Awesome. So you're not, so when you think, when I think about the public uh, benefits that we have, social security system, Medicare, and I see these declining populations, is that sustainable? Uh, well, um, the answer is the status quo is not sustainable. Um, we can go and just make adjustments. We can reduce benefits. Uh, we can raise the eligibility age. You can increase taxes. I think all these things are going to happen eventually. Uh, if you really wanted to go and take fertility seriously, you would start saying benefits depend upon the number of, kid, number of kids you have, mm. or especially benefits depend upon the number of taxpaying kids you have, or benefits depend upon the amount of taxes your kids have. Of course, once you push that far enough, it's like, why do we have these programs anyway? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> uh, you also wrote the book, Open Borders, the Science and Eth Ethics of Immigration. We've had on Alex Narasta from Cato. Mm -hmm. We've also had on Thomas Sowell, and of course, Alex is... Wow, you were able to get Thomas Sowell. We, we got Thomas Sowell. Really he was, yeah, he, it was amazing. <laughs> uh, it, was, it was like catching lightning in a bottle. Um, but he, he expressed some concerns, mm -hmm. not so much the economics of Im immigration, but the cultural mm -hmm. arguments against it. He said, you know, one of the big things between people and products is Toyotas don't have babies. Mm -hmm. what's, what's your... What's your retort to that? It's a completely reasonable point. We just got to actually look at the real world and see, first of all, is it even a bad thing that we're getting this cultural change? Maybe there could, maybe we're actually getting some cultural improvement. And then second of all, if there is a net negative, how bad is it? Is it so bad that you're going to say, tough luck, you're stuck in Haiti eating dirt for the rest of your life? Not even an exaggeration. If you go and Google Haitians eating dirt, that's a real thing. Um, so, I mean, what's very striking to me is that I actually have a piece about Thomas Sowell back when he was pro-immigration, because he's changed his mind. I don't think he ever admitted it, but he had a piece back in the 80s when he said that whenever he goes and is walking around the Bay Area and, he's, and he has people begging from him, uh, he says they, they are never Mexican. He says, no Mexican has ever asked me for money. And he said, and, I can't, and I'm not going to go and give the money because to go and give the beggar money would be to say that they are somehow superior to the hardworking Mexicans that I see out in the fields. So that's an actual Thomas, Quo, uh, Thomas, Sowell, Qual, uh, Thomas Sowell column. It's, to my mind, it's, you know, it's very powerful, but it also goes straight to this cultural argument of, hmm, well, sometimes immigrants have a, have, you know, have a better culture than we have. They got a better culture of work, a better culture of family. Uh, Alex Narasta has done some good stuff on wokeness. Yeah, immigrants are not woke. If you think that is a problem with our culture, guess what? Immigrants are people that are pushing in the opposite direction. So yeah, I would say that it's a reasonable thing to consider. If you really did have a country where everyone there was a violent communist terrorist, right? like an Islamist communist terrorist, that's where I'd say, all right, well, then you need to worry a bit. I would just say that I don't think countries like that actually exist. Uh, there are countries where they have a higher than normal share of these bad things. It is always important to remember the difference between it's twice as common there as it is here versus it's actually common or it's normal or it's universal. Uh, so for example, yeah, like if you were to go and let in Venezuelans, you know, even other ones getting out, I think it's probably likely they're more sympathetic to socialism than native born Americans. It doesn't mean that there's a big difference. We got a lot of sympathy for socialism here, and we've got a lot of resentment for socialism there, especially out of those that are coming. It may be, it's plausible, it's plausible to me that they are a bit worse than us on that account, but it's a mar likely a marginal difference. In the case of things like terrorism, this is really ridiculous. Like, what fraction of Muslims ever commit any terrorist acts in their entire lives? 
And people often say, well, but in the Quran, it said, like, don't tell me about what the Quran says. Tell me what human behavior shows. shows. Right. I mean, yes, if you want, we want to talk about what religious books say, I can take out the Bible, go to the book of Deuteronomy, and there's a bunch of horrifying stuff in there, too. It doesn't mean you should be scared of Jews or Christians, just because in their book doesn't mean they're going to do it. You know, like, well, why not? Like, well, like, either they've never read it, most, most likely scenario, they have no idea. If they did read it, wouldn't change their minds, or they would have some phony story about how it doesn't mean what it seems to say that it means. But whatever the reason is, it, just because it's written there doesn't mean they're going to do it. We look at actual behavior. Uh, obviously, it's true that Muslims have a higher than normal probability of committing active terrorism, but it is a really, really low probability. We're talking 0.0000, keep going. And that's where we need to say, does it really make sense to go and punish the 99.9999 for this very tiny minority? Uh, this is not the way that economists usually think. Thomas Sowell knows this. Uh, the way we usually think is, look, is there some way that we can target the exact problem in, so that we don't have a massive amount of collateral damage? And of course, there are a whole lot of ways that we can do that. Brian, give me the, the argument I hear all the time is that Milton Friedman quote, we can't have open borders hmm. with a welfare state. Give me your best ar ar argument against that line. Yeah, great question. If you will actually humor me, give me 10 seconds. Sure. <laughs> Brian is, is actually taking off and picking something up oh. that he's going to show us, I think, on the, uh, on his... Yes, uh, yes there yeah, we are. This is oh, the book. Cool. I have, and yes, great in book. the book... Excellent. Let's just go down here. Yes. In the book... I actually have Milton, I'm arguing with Milton Friedman. I have the exact quote from Milton Friedman there. So you can pause this. Uh, Beautiful. So, yes, the number of times I have gotten emails from people saying, obviously you, had, uh, you are unfamiliar with what Milton Friedman said. Like, I'm familiar with what Milton said. I have like a multi-page argument in the book with him on this. I think that it, like, even if Milton Friedman were alive and right here today, I think within about 30 seconds, I could get him to concede that the statement that he made is literally wrong because I would say, well, look, Milton, obviously it depends upon the size of the welfare state, doesn't it? If it was a welfare state of a dollar a year, it wouldn't make any difference, would it? And I'm almost certain, having met Milton Friedman, that he would say, well, yes, of course, if it, was, it is a matter of degree. We need to look at numbers. And then the next thing is, so Milton, did you look at the numbers before you said that? Right now, in the interview where he makes this claim, he actually says he hasn't even thought about the issue very much. So I don't think he ever did look at the numbers. Uh, guess what? I have looked at the numbers. Right? And for the United States, the answer is that the immigrants that we have right now seem to be net fiscal positives. Over the core, you know, over, you know, taking a suitably long run perspective, as you should. Right? And furthermore, uh, out of potential immigrants, the ones that live bad are the elderly because they're going to be collecting benefits without, you know, uh, you know old, so at least some old age benefits without working, as well as the very least educated immigrants. So we're talking about uh, high school dropouts. So which is, of course, globally not an insubstantial sum, but this is very different from the Friedman perspective. We just can't possibly do it. It's more of most immigrants more than pay their weight. We got some subcategories that don't. And then there's the question of, first of all, are we going to go and bend on this principle of free migration when it's just a matter of you know, some subsets are a problem? 
right? I mean, in the book, I say, look, Milton, would you agree that there are some babies that we can statistically predict are going to be a burden on the welfare state? I'm pretty sure he would say yes. All right, so should we then go and say you can't have a baby unless you got a government license certifying you as a non-burden? And I'm pretty sure he would say no. No. I say, all right, well, Milton, what's the difference? Right, I don't think there really is a difference. But the other one is, if this is your concern, and it's a reasonable concern, why try to go and stop all immigration rather than saying, let's go and limit access to the welfare state to natives or to people who paid a certain amount of taxes mm -hmm. or what have you? Why is it that the reaction is this maximally crude one of kick them out and keep them out instead of let's go and turn the dials of the welfare state and we'll, you know, adjust eligibility, adjust when you can get the benefits so that people that currently are a bad deal stop being a bad deal. Yeah, not to mention, Brian, that we, we could predict the number of those babies born that are going to start companies. I mean, look at Silicon yes. Valley, half of the Yes. companies there were started by immigrants. It's kind of amazing. Yeah. When yeah, you yeah, so yeah, very true. I mean, I think it's not too many of them were the children of high school dropouts, although there are some. I've also got some work showing that the level of upper mobility of immigrants is much higher than for natives, mm. which yeah. I think the reasonable interpretation of this is that people who grow up in the third world have severe environmental deprivation, which is stunting their development. And when their kids grow up in the first world, we basically get a picture of how much was missed because their parents didn't get to go and grow up in this country. Right. Well, Brian, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much. What an honor it's been to be able to chat with you. Uh, Ed's going to take you the Westway home in the next segment. But folks, in the meantime, if you want to get a hold of me or Ed, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. And now we want to hear from our sponsors, including Ed's employer, Sage. All clear. Great segment. Back into what is Sage? Sage is that we, we it's a software company. We do ah. mostly uh, accounting uh, software for hmm. small and medium businesses. All right. So, uh, do you want do you want the video of this, Brian? We can get the video of this. Yeah, to totally. you. Okay, and you can you know, feel free to put it up on your website. So that yeah, sounds that's, great. Okay, cool. Well, I'll give uh, what I'll do is I'll give you the link to the Zoom and you can just download it. So do you do you normally show video and audio or only audio? No, it's only it's audio, audio that only goes out. Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. All so right. but, uh, but yeah, the like, you know, video video is more fun and you know people can just yeah. turn off the screen if they don't want to don't want to look at us. Yep. Yep. So that's right. So we'll, we'll get that over to you and you can do whatever you want with okay. it. Just make okay. sure obviously hit tell them to hit our website. So that's all. Okay. <laughs> Cross pollinate. And Brian, um, I, I want to Go ahead, oh, I was just going to say, I, I didn't get to your myth of the rational voter, but it, what a fantastic book. Oh, thank you. Absolutely yeah. love that. Yeah, good stuff. I, yeah. I want to talk to you about AI, though, Brian. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So so the book that I'm right, working on right now uh, is definitely in the same genre as myth of rational voter, but I think that it's uh, a, a really good extension. I feel mm. like I've really got something new to say now. So it's called oh. Unbeatable, the Brutally Honest Case for Free Markets. Yeah. I, I read your sub stack on it. Yeah. 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 That's great. So, and I feel like I've got the, like, the really big picture now and ready to share it. So, I mean, the, the book's a lot more, you know, like in a way it's a lot more radical than Myth of Rational Voter. I don't talk about anything exotic. I don't talk about like privatizing the police or anything, seconds. but I just go after the most popular programs in the world. <laughs> Fantastic. Fantastic. I loved your biases. I thought you nailed it. <clears throat> you have to be at it 57. So I might interrupt you when we're.
Tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. We are talking with Brian Kaplan on The Soul of Enterprise, and I've been aware of Brian for quite some time following him on when he's spoken at the Cato Institute. I'm a big listener there, but I just came across his Substack in January of this year when I noticed that his he gave his economics exam to chat GPT, and initially it failed, or it got a D, and then it has more recently gotten an A. So Brian, talk a little bit about a chat GPT and passing your exam. Right. I'm the kind of guy who really loves the story of Doubting Thomas, that when I can put my fingers through the holes in his hands, I will believe. <laughs> I have been hearing amazing stories about what AI is going to be able to do, as well as stories about how great AI is already. And yet every time I would look into it, it would turn out that the stories were absurdly exaggerated by people who are letting their fantasies run away from, with them. Um, so when I heard about how great ChatGP was, I said, yeah, right, come on. It's just another time again that I'm going to go, that I'm getting ridiculous claims and it's not going to work out. And then I tried it on the original GPT-3 and I was right. And I said, all right, well, this thing stinks. It's not really very good. People, you know, like multiple people told them, oh, it's great now. Right? So anyone can say it's going to be great sometime in the future, but like great now that's testable. Anyway, so I then did a piece where I said, I will just bet the whole world that it won't be able to go and do And, and I actually know he's like another guy, Matthew Barnett. He said, he, he offered me a bet. That's right. He offered me a bet uh, saying that by 2030, it would be able to go and get A's on my exams. And I'm like, all right, well, you know, sucker's born every minute, man. Uh, but yeah, but then GBD came out a few months later and guess what? Yep. It got an A and I got an, and then I gave it another exam. It got an A on that one too. It's so contrary to what you may have heard, I heard I've not lost the bet yet. The bet has specific conditions which, which have not been fulfilled. And I'll still say I could get lucky. But yeah, like th this is the, definitely the shortest timeline between making a bet and me saying, oh, damn it, why did I make that bet? Um, actually, right now, a friend of mine who is very rich and, ve and very into AI has given me money to sponsor an AI illustration contest where basically I have this graphic novel I've been trying to get illustrated for like 15 years. And his idea is let's let people go and use whatever mix of AI and normal artistic skill that they want and then see what we can get out of this. So anyway, if there are any artists listening, if you just go to my Substack, you can find, get the link to the freelancer.com page. Or if you're on freelancer.com, you can go and track down what my contest is. Uh, so I'm really hoping this works out well. As soon as I announced it, some people went and said, oh, you know, like, like you made a big mistake. There's a great new AI, AI illustration coming out really soon and you surely should have delayed it. And I'm like, all right, well, this is only phase one of a three-phase contest, so it's not totally lost, but I already launched, so I'm not going to go and cancel it without, without warning and break my word. Uh, but anyway, hoping it works out great. Uh, we will see. I mean, no one will be happier than me for AI to allow me to get things illustrated without having to work with artists because... Um, while I really like the artists I've worked with, I also would even more like not being able to do it all by myself. <laughs> what, what are your thoughts, though, on AI in general? I know you've also uh, recently did a post about explosive growth with, it, with yes. AI. Do you think that yeah, that's, that's another that's a possibility? Bet. Right. So uh, this is a batch where basically comes down to sometime within the next 20 years, 
we're, you know, AI will be so good that we're going to get 20% global GDP growth in a single year. All right, so, and this, I will just say that's uh, like completely absurd. I don't, you know, of course you may say, well, you're wrong before. Yeah, but this is a, a much bigger thing to be wrong about. Because here I'll say, look, AI could be everything that people say, and yet the real world, we just have a bunch of bottlenecks. And so what I mentioned in this piece is like in a world where you need to spend 10 years getting building permits, you can't have world GDP grow by 30%. Like it could be that we have all the technology we need to do it, but we cannot get permission to do what we know how to do. If you then say, oh, no, no, the AI will be so good, you'll just type in, tell me the words I need to, to convince my zoning board to go and, get, and give me the permissions I want. That's what I'll say, no. There is no possible word, there's no combination of words that will do that. I don't care how good it is. It is beyond the realm of human possibility. And if you start really thinking about it, well, like, could the opponents go and type in, give me the words I need to say to the zoning board to, to deny permission, regardless of what you tell, of whatever, of whatever AI-inspired you know, speech you give. And it really does go back to ancient philosophy of, like, could God create a rock so big even he couldn't lift it? And, like, and once you're at that level, it's like, this is not technology we're talking about at all. This is just science fiction and theology and fantasy all run amok. Uh, so no, this is not the way the real world works or can work. You cannot go and type in, tell me how to go and get what I want. <laughs> still still be the guy in the back of the room going, what about the birds? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's like, type in like that. Like, and the guy says, well, sir, here's what you need to understand about birds. <laughs> well, we've got about one minute left, Brian. Uh, but what do you think 20% GDP growth in a year would mean for the world? I mean, it would be fantastic. It would mean that we are getting rid of global poverty very quickly. I mean, obviously it's never going to be equal everywhere, but anytime production in one part of the world goes up, that will that winds up benefiting the rest of the world almost always because you sell that stuff to other, other people. So they wind up getting a piece of the action. There's still grotesque, horrible poverty. There's still terrible energy deprivation on earth. So if we could actually get that kind of productive growth, that would be fantastic. Uh, you know, fingers crossed. I hope I'm wrong, but like you know, it would have to be at the theological level of error before I, I would be. Yes, it, it, I, I think you pointed out in the piece that if you lost this bet, it would be a very good thing. <laughs> that would... Oh yes, <laughs> Brian, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us Thank today you. on the Soul of Enterprise, Ron. What do we got coming up next week? Next week, Ed, we're just going to talk about a lot of different things. So a popcorn stuff, <laughs> I guess. Potpourri. All right, <laughs> sounds like good. All right, I'll see you in 167 <laughs> hours, then, Ron. All right. Okay, outstanding. Great meeting you guys. Thanks, Brian. Okay. Oh, and by and by the way, so you can get everything that I write on Amazon. Excellent. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, building experiences that connect, remove friction, and deliver insights. Join us next week, folks, on Friday at noon Pacific time. In the mean in the meantime, feel free to check us out at thesoulofenterprise.com for more information on each show and upcoming shows. Also, if you want to contact Ed or myself, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Thanks for listening, folks. Have a great weekend. All clear. Great job today, everyone. All right. Thanks, Andrew. Take thanks, care. Thanks, Andrew. Have a great weekend. Take care. All right. <laughs>